people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Sam Moore. I'm Alec Roberts, and we're here with Zach. Uh, who has written a very interesting series of articles about anti-fascist organising. Uh, but before we get into that interview, we just wanted to give a few updates on what's been happening. So, Alex, we, of course, did an episode about Bristol. And, yes, with uh, uh, Buster Two-Turn. Proceed, indeed. Uh, on the Tommy Robertson planned march that was going to take place there with uh, For Britain. What happened there? Did that go ahead? What happened to the far right? Where have they gone? Well, the anti-fascist demonstration did happen, but there was no far right to oppose because... Anne-Marie Waters, who's the leader of For Britain, um, pulled out, um, you know, they put up a little banner on their website saying the march is cancelled. They, you know, Anne-Marie went on a live stream and said it essentially because they couldn't get the numbers um, and because of the the left, the opposition they were going to face. They um, felt it was too dangerous or too unsafe for them to to safely have their demonstration. Obviously, it's a, a big victory. And to be fair, they were trying to have a far-right march in you know, one of the most lefty places in the whole country. So it was always going to be a bit of a struggle, although there have been a lot of, quite a lot of far-right organising in Bristol in the past. Um, on top of that, Tommy Robinson had been to Mexico, I don't know what for, maybe a holiday, and had been stopped at the border and sent back and not been allowed in the country and had then been arrested on his return to the UK. And so obviously their star guest wasn't going to be there. And um, they looked like they weren't going to get the numbers. And so they pulled out. There was a demonstration. It was not very big, probably about 150 people maximum. Um, but I think that's to be expected if you know there's no far right to oppose anymore. But I also think it's a good idea that they did do the demonstration anyway. Um, and so, yeah, that's that. We... Um, it got cancelled, and it was a, that was a success. Um, no one did a did a speech from the empty plinth of El- Edward Colston. Yeah, very well done to uh, the Bristol activists for organising all the kind of the anti-fascist opposition. The most effective anti-fascist opposition is, of course, the one that means that there is no far right to oppose at all. As I think we'll get into in our interview with Zach. Yeah, so we're talking about anti-fascist organising, and we wanted to discuss this mainly because we've, for most of our recent run we've mainly discussed far-right organizing fascist organizing and and that, and that kind of thing and we haven't really addressed although the podcast has been saying you know far-right fascism and anti-fascism we haven't really addressed anti-fascism all that much and it's true that there is a kind of the same problems that we had pre-pandemic we've got post-pandemic but we're also quite a lot weaker as a movement i would say and it, we're looking at quite a lot of rebuilding and a lot of um reconstituting i would say and you know, when I was like kind of uh, looking around for material about how we can rebuild and building movements and organizing and anti-fascism in the UK, I, I kind of knew about these articles that have been written on the lever um, in from 2018 onwards, like a series of four articles. And so I thought we'd, you know, bring Zach on, who's a writer and an activist, to talk about them a little bit. We have a different political takes, but I think it's a useful discussion to have. Um... And yeah, this is why we're doing the interview today. So, hello, Zach. Hello, thank you very much for, for having me on. And I actually had forgotten about this, but in the fourth one of the series, you um you quote us at length, so it's quite I do, I do. Well, you know, I really, uh, uh, I do. And I must say, I really enjoy the podcast. I think it's a really fantastic resource. So thank you very much for having me on. It's a, it's a great honour, great privilege. In the first of the series of the article, you, you talk about there's kind of two different, um, I suppose, models of organising anti-fascism in the UK that have been prevalent in recent times. And now one, of course, is the model kind of practised by Unite Against Fascism and Stand to Racism, which are um, front groups of the SWP, Socialist Workers' Party, um, and then the Anti-Fascist Network, which is a more, I suppose, anarchist-orientated um, organisation or network. Um, but obviously, it's kind of also a broad church, and there's other people involved in it as well. Do you could you just quickly describe those models for maybe our audience outside the UK? Yeah, so I think, and I think this is this is, I mean, I think in 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 one of the later essays, I call this kind of almost like a foundational split in 
in British anti-fascism, right? You have the, the stand-up to racism who uh, operate kind of, um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sure I don't need to explain too much to you guys or your listeners, but, you know, have these very nice uh, fluffy demonstrations um, that usually are, you know, fairly far away um, from, uh, say, an anti-fascist uh, fascist demo that's that's going on at the time, but also have links with kind of labour politicians, with trade unions and things like that, and, and have an, a kind of an ongoing presence. And in the case of things like Stand Up to Racism, you know, call their own demos um, that aren't uh, there to directly oppose um, kind of uh, fascists um, fairly regularly. I think they had one a couple of weeks ago in central London. Um, and they, they have this kind of, they, so they have this kind of thing, but they will always shy away from kind of the, um, a militant, um, a militant approach to, to, to the, to the fascist threat, to kind of physical confrontation or di- even direct confrontation um, with fascists. And, and they're organized, uh, you know, I think it, you know, they're organized maybe as a front group for uh, one of the uh, smaller British Trotskyists uh, parties. Um, and they have sets of organizers and they have money and funds coming in and they do what they do, I think, fairly well. I don't think they um, I don't think they fight fascism fairly well, but I think they they do the stuff that they do. Um, fairly well they're good at organizing those kind of things and ultimately directing people back into a small amount of people directing money and people back into um back into their party and i think they do that fairly well perhaps without confronting fascism directly and maybe having not so much uh, of, a, of a of a big effect on the on the militant fascist threat when it arises and then you have kind of the afn organizing on uh, uh an anti-hierarchical uh kind of basis using affinity groups um, in a clandestine manner um, in which to combat the more militant edge of the fascist threat, um, which we have seen, I think, be successful in a number of ways. I think we talk in the essay, you know, things like um, the AFN organising very, very well in Brighton, uh, you know, in places like Bristol, um, even in kind of Dover with often led by like the London AFN uh, kind of groups. But again, in broad anti, uh, anti-hierarchical affinity groups, um, that uh, often I think are are kind of in urban centres and don't have a great deal of reach in some of these smaller areas, which a bigger group and a better funded group like uh, Stand Up to Racism, United Against Fashion, whatever, are able to do to a to a to a much um, uh, to a much larger extent. You mentioned the kind of distinction between like physical confrontation and a lack of it. So yeah. um, people in the AFN, for example, will try to block the route of the far right's march. Yeah. So they won't be able to go from point A to point B in the way they wanted to. And this is often taken as a kind of a humiliation by people on the far right who want to you know, do that, to feel themselves yeah. in some ways like unimpeded uh, on the streets to be able to exert their power. And I'm kind of wondering... Is that the only dimension in which there is a kind of difference? Or, I mean, you also mentioned ways in which these organizations are reproduced and where it's the organizations are structured, which are different. But I wonder, do either of them politically confront the far right or fascism more generally? Um, and in what way, I guess, do you mean politically confront the far right? What in in in? So, for example, the way in which the far right has been... Um, uh, moving recently, right? So let's say kind of about five years ago, the DFLA, for example, mm-hmm. um, although they started as an, an offshoot of the FLA, they were, um, which was um, in, in response to the Manchester bombings, um, there nevertheless was a, a kind of a turn towards the focus on um, so-called kind of grooming gangs, right? Yeah. And, and that kind of thing. And it, it strikes me that the one of the most effective interventions into that was the, the feminist anti-fascist Absolutely. assembly, which which was kind of defined in some ways by both a, a physical confrontation, that is both preventing the far right from taking the route they wanted to, mm-hmm. and also, and this is quite important, politically contesting the idea that the far right was standing up for women, right? Politically contesting mm-hmm. the idea that they were the representatives of women against the kind of the, you know, the, the, the Muslim uh, kind of uh, predator or something like this. Yeah. Right. And so what role do you see political confrontation of that form taking in the AFN and the sans racism? Yeah, I think I think what we saw at that kind of moment was a really important step forward um, in in terms of kind of bringing together. And I think an attempt, I think probably a self-conscious attempt, or I, I do wonder if it was a self-conscious attempt by the organisers to take some of what 
uh, Stand Up to Racism was doing and use the, the, the knowledge and skills accrued from earlier, um, more militant anti-fascist um, uh, anti uh, mobilization. Um, and kind of bringing them together. So you had the direct, the, the, the direct, you know, blocking people from marching, but with a very, very, very clear political motive. And I'm not saying that wasn't there in um, previous kind of um, uh, previous kind of AFM mobilizations. I think it, it, it clearly was, but I think it was articulated differently uh, and in an attempt, at least with the assembly, the way of, of doing an assembly, um, an attempt to broaden the participation beyond kind of closed um, and clan, clandestine, I suppose clandestine, you would call it necessarily clandestine uh, when engaging in that kind of work um, way of organizing. Um, so I think that was a really important um, step. I'm going to talk about it in, in the essay as a, as a kind of an important step of moving forward. Now, I think looking at kind of post-pandemic, is that something that is that something that in in well, what is the organisational model? I think is an important question to ask that can sustain and develop um, uh, that kind of political and militant intervention, because I think we've we've seen a split, and this is not this is kind of a historic split. I think in in anti-fascism in uh, in the United Kingdom, in Britain, in England, um, in particular, uh, really since the 70s, since the split between the anti-Nazi League and Red Action. Um, where where these two kind of tendencies, and again, I'm I'm speaking I'm speaking perhaps in general terms. I think um, particularly things like Red Action and uh, uh, AFA anti-fascist action, and the AFN have all attempted in some ways to do some of the things that the more fluffy liberal approach um, has attempted to do. But I don't think it's been very successful in doing those things. And I think it's not been very successful about in our organising. Um, these uh, bigger kind of campaign groups who have a lot more resources um, to do the things that they do. And I think it's important then to look at, okay, what organisational model um, is, is going to be effective at bridging the gap between these between these two um, these two tendencies? Is uh, kind of the, the model that the feminist uh, anti-fascist assembly uh, that employed through that, I think, very successful action. Is that something that is going to be durable for the long term? Or do we need um, a kind of a, a longer discussion about the way in which we have organized, um, we have organized kind of our, our militant anti-fascism? I think that's where the kind of the cutting edge or the bleeding edge of anti-fascist practice is and, and has been for some time. I think you only have to read um, books like you know, Beating the Fascists or Physical Resistance by Dave Hand to see that that often the tendency I spoke about, which I think is best embodied by Stand Up to Racism, um, often failed um, quite significantly uh, in in meeting the fascist threat. However, still is the dominant trend, um, I think, in this country today when, when we look at anti-fascist organising or what we may consider um, broader uh, anti-fascist organising. So I think that, that, I think for me, and I think why, uh, I think why, you know, several years ago we went about uh, looking to answer that question, or at least pose that question in a different way. I don't think reading back on some of the articles, all the things we put forward when writing um, are necessarily that useful uh, today. But I think that central question remains. What organisational form is going to allow us to do the clandestine militant um, work of facing fascism head on, uh, that extremely necessary work, but also build a broad front, front uh, that enables us to um, that enables us to um, confront fascism in the other ways that it um, that it appears, uh, and reproduce that organisation to be able to hold those two sometimes contradictory um, uh, tendencies or elements, hold them together. I think that I think is a key question going forward, and will be the key question of of, um, of fascist uh, anti-fascist mobilisation uh, in the next in the next decade or so. I think there are def definitive differences between the different models, the standard terrorism model and the AFN model, uh, especially by who is being organised and who are the organisers. Like, mm. is it, you know, trade unionists and is it kind of those kind of labourer, upper kind of people, you know, significant people within trade union movements or whatever? Yeah. Or is it kind of specifically anti-fascist activists who are anti-fascist first and foremost? Um, but there are also quite, quite a lot of similarities in the models as well, which people don't really want to discuss because they want to kind of distinguish themselves from each other. Mm. So although Santerism has a kind of 
aspiration towards mass organizing, oftentimes it's a very core, very clandestine, I would say, clique mm. of people who are doing the actual organizing and doing the mobilizing. And then people who attend, they have aspirations towards large demonstrations, but the people mm. who attend are not actively involved in the in the mobilization as organizers. It's a yeah. kind of small group. And it's similar with the AFN, like, you know, we, we focus on some of the kind of more kind of spiky stuff that the AFN has done over the mm. years. But oftentimes, for example, in Tower Hamlets in 2013 or in other demonstrations, it was an aspiration towards a mass demonstration as well, yeah. but an AFN mass demonstration. Yeah. And yet it was still the same small group mobilizing people. I think London AFN had, a laugh had a number of like weekly meetings in the build up to that Tower Hamlets demonstration. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, in order to build this mass block of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, so it's interesting to see the similarities there as well. I have to say, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't really agree with the distinction between people who are mobilizing and people who are not mobilizing. I think we're we're no longer in a position where uh, we were historically where there's a kind of a clear set of organizers for demonstrations. Um, it is true that there are s- small groups of people who do, let's say, kind of you know, the majority of the initial instigatory work. But then part of the kind of the way of instigating a demonstration, uh, particularly a kind of successful demonstration, is not to make it so that everyone who comes has to be contacted directly by some small group of people, mm. but to produce, essentially, this is going to sound kind of trivializing, but I didn't mean it like that, kind of good memes, right, that can it, it, that can be passed through networks in such a way as to make sure that everyone wants to go to the thing. If you think about the way in which, yeah. for example, if you're putting on a club night, this is a kind of good neutral example, right, if you're putting on a club night, you're the organizers. Maybe there are four of you, five of you, whatever. It doesn't matter. You can still get 20,000 people to like come through to a club night, right? That's not a problem because you generate things that mean that people want to come and then they want to spread the meme and that makes other people want to come. And then those people spread the meme further and further and further and further and further, right? And so I think there's in-network politics, in organizations defined by, uh, sorry, in societies defined by networks and not by kind of clearly defined institutions and organizations the split between organizers or like people who are doing the mobilizing people who are not doing the mobilizing doesn't really make any sense anymore i think i think that's a i think that's a very important point i think my my, the one thing i would say to that is um it's a lot easier to kind of to make a meme to an extent i mean this is not um i I think we, we both mean a meme in the sense of like a kind of a um, a collection of attractive ideas that you want to spread yes. further, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think to do that, to do that as a, a group of organisers, I mean, we talk about uh, we talk about a nightclub promoter who's often part of a scene um, that shares an aesthetic uh, that is uh, is able to be popularised and catches on to a kind of um, uh, you know part of part of the popular imagination. And these things, I think, require or can require resources. I don't think they always have to. I mean, I remember the days of like the million, the million man march, the kind of anonymous thing that used to happen in central London, right? Where you just set up a Facebook group with a poorly edited graphic and you get thousands of like kids coming along um, uh, in central London on, on November the 5th, right? Yeah. But what I, what I would say is that, that, that groups like Stand Up to Racism um, are often more effective at, at, at doing that um, because they have resources, because they have resources and they have links to people and they have uh, kind of they have um, knowledge that's transmitted through an organization that enables them to go out and and make these connections through through people. And, and you know, we talk about kind of um, their approach mainly being through trade unions and people who aren't necessarily actively involved in anti-fascist um, kind of organizing, but people who also, you know, again, passing it through their network of people in their branch. Um, who will also kind of then maybe put a motion forward to provide funding for this organization, for example. Um, uh, people who are involved in kind of their local labor politics, when you have somebody, you know, you get somebody posting out on Twitter, you know, a, a politician or whatever, a, a media figure to come along to this kind of thing. Having contacts throughout uh, kind of networks with with your kind of like, I wouldn't say, well, with your fairly polished um, message, I think is, and you have people who are, who have, resources and training to be able to propagate these things um is a lot is a lot so is is a it's a lot easier i think to get that message out to do that thing now 
I think maybe by that through that form you are well through that form you are necessarily limited perhaps to what you can put out right like you're operating in 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 the sphere of legality and often in this in a, in a sphere where you um, are going to be under increased kind of police scrutiny because of the type of because of the even just the nature of the action that you're doing right so by necessity you have to do that you have to be I think um, or uh, I think there is a um, a tendency towards kind of the, the fluffy, the liberal, the, um, you know, being a bit nicey-nicey about it and, 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 and things like that. But that also has the effect of kind of broadening the broadening the appeal. Um, and, and so I think, again, like, so to propagate those, to propagate those kind of means, I don't think it's just the message, but it's those connections that you have by being a, um, by at least having a kind of open and front, not open, but a kind of a front-facing organisation. Um, that, that can do that. Now, I know that the response, I think, from people who are often, I think this is an important thing to talk about, um, the response um, from people who have been involved in the more kind of militant edge who come from, I think, a different um, political, theoretical, ideological background to those people in stand-up to uh, racism has been to emphasise kind of, um, emphasise the anti-hierarchical nature of, of organising. Uh, I think there was when the, the, the pre, I think a precursor to, um, I guess, later iterations of, of, of London anti-fascist organising, South London anti-fascist, which I don't think exists as an organisation anymore um, and hasn't for some time, wrote a very interesting article in 2013, um, kind of talking about, I think, some of these problems. And But the answer often is then to become anti-hierarchical, embed yourself in... Um, in communities that are already doing this thing right you know i think there was a line which i think was particularly good and interesting that the children of migrants um have have are already have already been organizing against fascism and already you know are responding to incursions of the state for example on the way they live their lives so to go in and to say you know this is how we do it this is how we work this is how we fight fascism um is the wrong approach and the only approach that can that can um that can actually work in those uh, circumstances is an anti-hierarchical approach, I guess. And I think that is a really important thing to talk about because I, I don't necessarily believe that. I don't necessarily think that has been an effective thing and too often uh, leads to kind of a liquidation of the organization, right? What do we need to be um, be organizing? Um, there's a kind of thing, right? You need to go to your community. You need to organize in your community. Um, but actually, you, you know, we shouldn't, we should be doing it on a non-hierarchical way. We should be bringing everybody in. Um, we shun away from the knowledge and experience we've built up as as activists in this fairly specialist and particular field um, and dissolve ourselves into the people that we want to be organizing and then what happens from there often not a lot i think i I'm, i guess i'm kind of skeptical of this um idea that anti-fascism is or should be a kind of a fairly specialized activity maybe you can make the kind of the, the steel man case for why exactly it should be well i think that i don't well i I think the nature of what I think people do in anti-fascism um, requires at least a, a, a level of a level of knowledge, a level of kind of specialist knowledge about how to how to set up a demo, how to um, how to gather information um, on on your targets, how to make sure that that information is shared um, properly. Uh, how to understand how to um, to uh, to fight back when there are fascist incursions in your community and things like that. Now, I think these things um, can happen, but I think there is an issue of transmitting that information um, from the past to the present, from people who've been doing that previously in certain ways to people who are trying to do that now, right? Um, and so I think there are there are various specialist kind of things that you need training and knowledge to be able to do um so i think that for one for one reason is kind of important i don't know if it should be um well i don't know whether it should be something that is outside of other kind of revolutionary or activist activity but there is knowledge that you need to do right if you try and set up uh, if say you know you live in in telford um where there have been a number of kind of um uh, fascist mobilizations called by Tommy Robbins, for example. I can't remember exactly when the last one was, right? You live there, you want to start up your own kind of um, anti-fascist organization that can combat people continuously coming to your town to um, 
you know, to 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 preach um, their fascist message. Without the support, I think, of of a of a broader organisation, it becomes quite difficult to do that. And without kind of the transfer of of knowledge and the ability, um, yeah, and the and ability to learn kind of uh, from people who are active and have been active and have developed certain skills in those areas, I think it's extremely difficult to um, to be successful uh, in that way. And I think you end up making a, or you can end up making a great deal of mistakes um, that you don't necessarily. That you don't need to, because there is an institutional memory there that can support you with that. And I think again, that's that's an important thing: having an institutional memory and having durable institutions that can support you, um, and can survive kind of lulls in um, in uh, in kind of fascist mobilization. Um, I think is important. Uh, I got a question for Sam. Actually, well, we can all talk about it, but. okay go on ask it ask it to zach and then i will answer it so you know we've told a a familiar story by now on this podcast about the role of neoliberalism on political life and politics and the kind of social optimization and the internet bringing people in some way back together and the recreation of, of political organizing in the internet at least to some extent and i wondered um and we told this story in relation to the far right but i wondered if we could apply it to how easy is it applicable to uh, anti-fascist organizing and more broadly, you know, radical left organizing as well? Like, is there such a thing as the post-internet far left? And if so, should we pursue it? And I, I think the reason I ask this question is, you know, a question I sometimes get at talks that we do is, you know, can we apply the memes of the far right, the tactics of the internet far right for the left? And I'm, I'm always very ambivalent about this idea. And I wondered what your thoughts were. Go for it, Zach. I'll, uh, I'll I'll come in later. Well, no. I, to be honest, I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know on that one. Um, I I think we'd have to start looking in and say, you know, actually, how successful, how successful were they? I think. I don't know. I'm I'm very skeptical, actually, of 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 memes um, and. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm, this is answering a, a, an incorrect question. But no, I'm I'm fairly skeptical of. Um, of that building a robust politics, I think um, I think it has become, I guess, clear as someone who was fairly on online um, as a younger person. Um, I think it's very difficult to build um, a kind of robust individual politics, um, precisely because. <laughs> the politics of, of memes, I think, can be so hyper-individualized. But I think it's fairly robust to build an individual politics in connection with others who are not just believing the same things you are, but are able to action and act on those beliefs. Um, I don't know if that answers the question or not, or whether that's a useful answer, but I guess that would be that would be a partial answer that I'd give. I think I'd probably say that the in, the, in, in network societies, which is where we live essentially um we don't have these as i was saying before these kind of coordinating institutions um or we don't have these kind of large institutions that can that seem to be kind of um we might describe as kind of shelling points so shelling point is a um an idea in game theory so imagine that you got to meet someone in london you know the time but you don't know the place and you don't and you know that they don't know the place either so you've got to decide the place between you where are you going to meet big ben yeah essentially Right, so, so or, or, or Trafalgar Square, somewhere like that, right? So people say different different answers, but they only say one of like maybe three or four answers. So the idea is that in networks, in, in games where you have less information that you would ideally like, you coordinate around the most common or most like usable, the most like kind of obvious answer, right? So this is what a shelling point is. A shelling point is, is the way is the point which you can coordinate around. And I think in network societies, politics becomes something like a game of shelling points, which is that when people want to do politics. And I have to say, I think broadly, apart from people who are very dedicated or very kind of far on the left, people's wish to do politics is generally something quite kind of indeterminate. They want to do something kind of political sometimes, mm-hmm. right? And I think people curate a kind of a life. Um, they, they want to watch something, you know, kind of relatively highbrow. Uh, they want to watch something kind of relatively lowbrow. Or they want to see a friend who's kind of fun. And they, it's, it's kind of, there's a kind of indeterminacy to desire. Uh, and there's an indeterminacy to political desire. So when they want to, quote unquote, kind of do politics rather than 
that they, when they want to confront the specific threat of a particular far organization encroaching on their community, when they want to do politics in this kind of quite general sense, they're going to coordinate around a few fairly small answers, right? Um, and this is one of the reasons why, and one of the kind of utilities of having kind of big left-wing influencers, basically people who stand out in the network of the left as particular kind of coordinating points where if you want kind of the line on some sort of issue or you want sort of some sort of political thought, you can always go to that person and you'd be like, okay, what did they say about this issue? And so that's obviously quite a skeptical take. I'm not massively in favor of this as a, as a condition of politics, but I think it is a realistic one. And therefore, what I think the effect this has of having these kind of coordinating points where people go in a relatively indeterminate way to do politics is that it's more useful to build quite general purpose organizations, platform organizations, essentially, and um, you know have them kind of represented or kind of organized around, uh, you know, let's say, kind of influencers or something like that, um, rather than having hyper-specialized organizations that do this particular thing or that particular thing or this particular thing and so on. Now, I think that's a perfect solution, but I think that's the kind of like way of organizing anti-fascist activity, not necessarily doing anti-fascist organization, but organizing anti-fascist activity that in some ways conforms most clearly to the just like way in which politics is organized by default in the network society era anyway. Obviously, I'm skeptical about all of that. I think there's lots of bad tendencies in there as well. There's definitely a tendency towards a, a, a bad centralization, um, a bad kind of homogenization of politics. But nevertheless, like never, I think that is quite like a realistic assessment of how politics actually operates now and what anti-fascism or how anti-fascism could relate to it. Yeah, I think I... I think that's a really, really interesting point. I very much agree with that. Um, but I think then what you what we have then is is a split because I think you kind of said like, um, well, it, uh, the way that anti-fascism the way that anti-fascism can be organised rather than um, I'm trying to remember the exact phraseology that you used, right? Um, but I think you have kind of then again like a, a split between kind of two things, right? You have you have this kind of broad network society, people coming together around these certain things, where influencers play uh, an important part as kind of nodes um, of these things, uh, of, of these uh, of this network, um, coming together around a uh, around certain around certain key issues, rather than having. Um, specific or specialized organizations that deal with this issue and that issue and i think that's broadly correct i think that 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 is necessary well no not necessary how do i put this i think that's i think that's a broadly correct way of how politics functions today but i think again that 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 draws up because there still exists these groups of people who do specialist anti-fascist organizing for example or specialist trade union organizing um or specialist kind of uh, whatever organizing um and again this, i think this thing is not so much new right we saw this we saw similar the similar form or at least kind of the genesis the form of, of action that say extinction rebellion or people like uh, insulate britain are taking with like starting off in the student movements in, in 2010 and then uk uncut stuff right where almost like a meme of of organizing spreads beyond what kind of a central group of people and a central group of organizers can do whether that um, and I think, you know, that's clearly a, a, a sign of how stuff works and how stuff um, how stuff works at the time. Whether that way of doing, whether that, that kind of mode of politics um, is able to meet kind of, say, the threat of, of fascist violence, um, or again, maybe broader kind of um, aims that we have in our organizing outside of anti-fascism, I think is an important question to ask. And I think given that the, the I think, um, the, necess the necessity of like kind of highly clandestine organizing um, that goes on with certain types of necessary anti-fascist action, um, I think you require then some kind of some kind of specialization and i think then again i think my 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 question and i don't know if i have a a good answer uh, to this i think maybe i thought i did several years ago but again um politics change but i think we need to start formulating an answer of how those things can work in tandem and avoid some of the issues around kind of um kind of centralization there um yeah yeah one of the kind of the illusions i think of the distinction that people have been making for good 10-15 years now between like 
um, horizontal networks and like hierarchical organizations is that, of course, networks are just as hierarchical as organizations are. Absolutely. They're just like hidden in their hierarchies. Absolutely. And I think this has been part of the conversations, I think, um, before the pandemic around anti-fascism from a number of um, from a number of different people, including yourselves, I, I, I think, on the podcast and, and in your writing um, that, yeah, again, these 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 hierarchies, these the hierarchies do exist in that kind of horizontal organizing and and also, I think, can lead to uh, the disintegration of of such groups, um, I think, as well, when you have unacknowledged um, hierarchies, when you have a have an anti-hierarchical tendency which also then develops into almost an anti-organizational tendency or um, a tendency that avoids building durable institutional structures right I think you know we, we when we look at when we look at the influencer today that node of a network I think what you're also looking at is is some sort of institution right they're a person that has um, they're a person but again often a brand with um, that is connected to other people, but often um, has a variety of things that you would expect an institution to have, right? A way of um, a way of having access to resources, right? Um, more than one person, usually a group involved in the maintenance of that uh, institution um, that is able to develop it to changing circumstances, right? I think this is this is the way that we see. Um, kind of, I guess, influences or or kind of things doing. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think actually, um, you know, when you look at something like Navarra Media, for example, right? Yes, you have it around certain personalities, but it's an institution that developed with a specific intent um, of creating in a, a durable left-wing institution um, that we didn't have at the time when it was created. And I think it's been fairly successful in doing that. And it's a good thing that it, it kind of is around and doing that. I want to ask a question about the relationship between anti-fascism and anti-racism. Sure. Um, how do you see that relationship? Why is it supposed to be a problem for anti-fascism? As people have kind of like discussed it being. And yeah, what can anti-fascists do going forward in order to kind of resolve that in some ways split? Well, maybe if I could just quickly. Yeah, go ahead. Um, you know, I, this, this was like kind of, kind of a commonplace thing said to me ages ago quite a long time ago now when i was organizing in different groups how um anti-fascism and anti-racism organize anti-racist organizing were necessarily separate because they were addressing two separate circle for phenomena and therefore needed two separate kind of approaches um one was addressing fascist um extra parliamentary groups outside of the state and it was it was combating um, you know, reactionary elements are within the kind of overarching structure of society, whereas anti-racist movements were addressing racist structures of society, racist policing, uh, prisons, borders, all this kind of stuff on a on a broader scale, and therefore um, different kinds of um, political organising were needed. And you know, for the longest time, I did have sympathy with that, and I think we, in discussions with amongst ourselves and with other people, I have changed that opinion and questioned it a little bit about how we should see anti-fascism as a, as a small part of a broader struggle and to see how, you know, how fascism and fascist groups and fascist movements implicitly and explicitly support um, racist racism in society and, and capitalism in society and how they are kind of the, the interdependent relationship between um, fascist movements, reactionary movements, and the authoritarian racist tendencies of the state, which we we've, we've kind of explicated uh, in our kind of definition of fascism. And so, I think there is a quite an unfortunate split that should be resolved in some way. And how how that happens is another question, um, of course. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. I mean, when we think about um, when we think about kind of the the violence of of fascism um, in this country, it's kind of almost the crest um, the crest of a wave. Maybe 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 that's the wrong way of putting it, right? But it's it's the sharp edge of broader societal and historical tendencies that flares up at a time that is necessary. That is almost necessitated by 
um, by British capital, by the uh, almost the difficulties that the bourgeoisie is happening now. That's not to say it's directly controlled by this. It's an independent movement. Um, I think that that has a often a relationship with the state, and I think that relationship varies in different contexts. Um, but you only have to look at, for example, um, the revelations on Operation Gladio to see how um, many uh, fascist groups were implicitly linked to the state and implicitly linked to um, to American foreign policy, right? One of the bits in the book that uh, the advisory of Ashton book, I had to unfortunately cut because Alex objected to it, was that <laughs> we decided that the CIA was the ultimate far-right organization. And uh, yeah, outrageous that it had to be cut, to be frank. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked because, I mean... <laughs> When Alex has spoken to me privately about what happened with Tower 7, I'm, I'm really surprised that he asked that. Too. He does love to talk about Tower 7. No, no not just, Building will, 7 talk on he, the podcast. He always talks about Building 7. Yeah, I no, made well, one joke about Building 7 and I thought it was a safe space to do that. It's so fun. <laughs> it's always now, you're, now you're throwing it back in my face right now. Fuck. No, okay. But um, so, but I, 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 think, I think, again, like seeing it, seeing fascism as... Um, as kind of like a um, uh, as being born of these kind of broader tendencies, I think as well is probably quite important. And so, of course, like anti-fascist organising has to go alongside with with kind of uh, with the methods and techniques of of kind of anti-racist organising. And I think again, like they should it should play a part um, in in our in our militant or revolutionary organizing in general right like and, and anti-fascism i think again one of the one of the things about having these specific anti-fascist organizations um whilst they i think are necessary absolutely necessary and have been necessary i think it shows the weakness of perhaps the um the left particularly I, what i would say is maybe a um a militant left uh in this country is that they aren't they don't have strong relationships with broader broader kind of revolutionary if you want to call that um or radical let's say organizations um at least not not open ones although of course many people in these organizations will be part of anti-fascist organizing um i think it would be clear to say um so again how how you kind of interpolate that back into a into a broader movement um is is really really important and like let's face it right like when you look at for example the the black lives matter protests and when we were talking about kind of um the issue around the colston uh, uh the colston statue and um for britain in a very ill-advised and again ultimately called off attempt to do a demo there and do a speech on top of the colston statue um that's something that's not very easy for a fascist group to do because there is such broad, there was such broad condemnation um, of the fact that there was a uh, well, there was a political moment where that at the action of throwing Colston in the bay was, I think, uh, broadly approved, right? Um, was a very good action because it connected the histories of slavery and the ongoing the history of slavery that um, the British Empire participated in and and, and drove um, with modern racism experienced by um by black people in this country right yeah i mean the uh black lives matter meme if we're going to go back to kind of the meme talk is mm. probably the most popular um potentially radical i mean it's very radical i think but like potentially yeah. kind of radical meme of the last like, decade mm. i'm sorry i can't take you seriously when you use a meme like that I sorry have, I, 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 by, again by memes i do just mean like attractive ideas that are kind of widely distributed but i think i think what i would say and I, and maybe this is potentially more so in in the us is that it's it's those kind of radical memes i mean we we i think it's important to talk about their kind of recapture um, and moderation by um by the state and like the ideological state apparatus and and how that seeks to neuter the radical essence of um uh of this and and bring it into an extent i think into the existing way of things which blunts its radical edge that's important but you know it's important to say that in doing so it it neuters its ability to make real fundamental change that fundamental that, that challenges uh, the system that we live in which ultimately operates on on 
um, open and clandestine racism and is perpetuated by that perpetuates that because it helps it helps it perpetuate itself right um, and I think then again that that I think is a is a potential issue that we I guess need to or, or have to, should find a way of of, um, of organizing around I've been reading back physical resistance recently for another project by Dave Han and I would recommend if you can get a copy it's quite it's not in print at the moment so quite difficult to get a copy but if you can find one um or you wait for the reissue when it whenever it comes out later in the year then it, it's worth reading um just because mainly just for the the testimonies it collects from different mm. activists from all the way back to the early 20th century the thing when people talk about AFA anti-fascist action which is an organization that um was existed in existence for much of the 80s into the 90s um People often, I suppose, lionize or kind of look at that organization with quite rose-tinted glasses in many ways because um, they want some kind of... They're kind of taken by the stories of daring do that that arrive throughout the kind of history of the organization and don't really interrogate how it was perpetuated, how it was built and how it kept going for so long. And, and even whether that kind of organization is even possible anymore as well. And what I thought was rereading it was how... Um, it was built off a lot of existing struggle, existing institution, left institutions that are just not the same as they were anymore. So, you know, the kind of network of squats in London, for example, which is, you know, there's still squats in London, but it's nowhere near what it was in the 80s, for example. Or, you know, the, it being built off the DIY uh, anarcho-punk or punk uh, music scenes, you know, there isn't that kind of um, relationship between politics and musical scenes in that way anymore. Um, and so it's difficult to see how you can transpose that. Um, but what I do think is that, um, and what we've we've said before, is that anti-fascism should be a reflective action of any kind of radical movement. Um, and I think instilling that and building back those kind of, that kind of general activity is really important um, as well. And so, um, you know, if there were to be, for example, some kind of national anti-fascist conference, I think that would be you know, quite a positive thing. Um, in a way, fulfilling some of the role of transmitting knowledge and, and generating discussion and bringing people together without, you know, there's a danger of imposing some kind of ideal idea, some idea of an organisation and trying to fill it out from the, you know, mapped out structure without it being responsive to what is materially happening in society or the material political conditions as well. And so, you know, there is a danger, and I think I fell into this trap before as well, of like sketching out the ideal organisation and then trying to populate that organisation with activity, which is, I think, the wrong way to go about it. Yeah, I I would very much agree. I would very much agree. And I think this is maybe an uh, an aspect of, of how, um, how my political thinking has changed over the last several years. Um, but I think there again there there are uh, we should be learn we should be learning or we should learn I think lessons um, of both effective and ineffective um, kind of organising um, throughout our history. It's why again again things like uh, Dave Han's book is is so useful and so interesting as a part of that kind of learning that history, um, learning uh, some lessons rather than to build uh, a kind of an organisation of an ideal type. Um, but almost as a, as examples of, okay, like these are the things, these are some of the problems that we have encountered and we should encountered and look at the way that we solved them or the way that we attempted to solve them. And actually, is there something in the method that we use, um, to solve those organizational issues, um, that is maybe more important than an ideal type. So moving back to, um, yeah, so, uh, having an approach to organization, um, an approach to dealing with issues that come up, um, I think is important, right? I think you can clearly see, for example, like a move uh, to anti-hierarchical organizing um, as a reaction, as I think a reaction that's been seen a number of time over, over history, to completely stultified, rigid organizations that are fighting battles of the past um, with organizers from the past who are unwilling um, to learn from new, from, from, 
the people around them, the younger people around them, or look at new conditions as they arise, right? And so become effective at perpetuating themselves as an organization, but not necessarily effective at meeting the demands um, that society throws up at any one time, right? So developing a method toward organization rather than an ideal type of, of um um, of organizational uh, model, I think is probably an important step and probably something that we should spend time um, thinking about. I suppose to conclude, let's kind of give our final thoughts on this question. I think it's a really important one. And I think we've, you know, we've written about in our books about how we were kind of anticipating some kind of reactionary politics to come. And we shouldn't be complacent that the UK is immune from the kind of stuff that's happening in France, for example, where the far right is on the, you know, on the verge of uh, the presidency of France, or in places like Brazil or, or you know, Turkey, or you know, we're not we're not kind of special just because we haven't had this kind of capture of power by the far right. Um, and so this question is going to come back about how we do anti-fascist organising and how how we kind of this idea of method i think is really really important um but i would also say there is a kind of and another factor to this which i think i could leave people with is um what are your kind of what are the ultimate aims implicit in the anti-fascism so we know the overriding aim of anti-fascism is to get rid of fascists or stop fascists from organizing in society or make it the conditions of fascism impossible within society but there's also the question of for what aim is for what purpose is that um Go objective being carried out so is it a kind of um more kind of institutional sense so it's trying to excise far-right politics from liberal society and then we're good because we've got rid of that very extreme element and now things can go back to the way they were or where they are without that kind of nasty element or in in many respects that objective is then expanded out to include all kinds of extremist organizing including ones that are good or um, is it in defence of movements, in defence of communities, in defence of um, radical organising, um, and seeing it as a kind of necessary component of those of that organising flourishing and succeeding, um, which is the kind of the objective I uh, am aligned to? Yeah, I guess the one of the things I would say about your list of different possible objectives. Uh, which I think we're supposed to be the same objective. Like, you know, on the one hand, stopping fascists. On the other hand, stopping fascists from organizing in society. On the other hand, getting rid of the preconditions for fascism. I think of those as three quite distinct projects. And therefore, I maybe like think that there's, it's it's possible to kind of slide back and forth between the different, uh, you know, kind of aspects of that project rather than to kind of um, decide on one particular aspect of it. Yeah, so, so the, the, just to follow that, because that's very useful. That's what I did mean this. Um, the first thing that I talked about, you know, the excising tendency, is interested in getting rid of fascism, but it's not interested in stopping the conditions from which fascism arises. This is what we call minimum anti-fascism in the book. Right, but yes, but in, in a different way. In that it's like, for example, the um, anti-fascism of um, NGOs and, and kind of state structures and counter-terror policing. Yeah. For example, is excising without while perpetuating the same thing that will give rise to more fascists. Yes. Whereas there is the alternative, which I've already explicated. I'm, I'm kind of interested in what. Okay, maybe let's take a kind of even more meta question. Um, Zach, why why is it you think that the debate around anti-fascist strategy is so unbelievably convoluted? Why is it so complicated? I think. Uh, well, I think why it's so complicated. Well, if the reason it's so complicated, I'm really bad at explaining myself. Yeah, like, same. No, exactly. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> this is this is this is this is <laughs> you know um, subjective uh, idealism, uh, petty bourgeois subjective idealism, comrades. Um, I think there's probably an objective reason why anti-fascism is such a difficult thing to explicate as a project, and why it is that the um, why it is that the kind of design of organisations or the the uh, affirmation of a certain kind of political structure is so complicated. Uh, and it's partially because of several kind of suppressed things within anti-fascist history, right? One is that we are kind of sitting in the consequence of a collection of anti-fascist projects, namely more or less all political activity after the Second World War is anti-fascist in intention, if not in effect, right? Liberalism is a form of anti-fascism. Uh, conservatism is a form of anti-fascism. 
um, the uh, the Soviet Union was obviously a form of anti-fascism. Um, there's no political project that attains a particularly substantive scale since 1945 that has not been, to some extent, opposed to fascism, at least in name. Right? Um, that, of course, is not the full extent of it because it's opposed in name but not in practice. Um, we know that neoliberalism, for example, produces various forms of the far right, if not forms of fascism. We know that conservatism necessarily kind of has this like tense relationship with the far right. Uh, we know that liberalism, uh, you know, even uh, the kind of the left liberals, for example, have this tendency towards um, you know trying to uh, defend various aspects of kind of far right programs. So there, there's a kind of a, um, a kind of suppressed thought here, which is that. Is that there's an attempt to make anti-fascism more particular and more specific and more in some ways universal. Sorry, no, not universal. More specialist than it is um, by not acknowledging that it's actually the dominant tendency in society at large. And that's why I think it's useful to think about organizing against the far right rather than organizing against fascism. Because the far right is a very general sense, a very general set of tendencies within politics. And I think opposing the far right and opposing the interests of the far right and not treating fascism as kind of a weird exception, but acknowledging that in fact fascism is very rare, is quite a useful strategic realignment in anti-fascism or in things against the far right, which allows us to see the connections to anti-racism. It also allows us to identify the forms of political thought and political speech that members of the far right are giving. Because of course, traditionally in anti-fascism, you don't negotiate with the far right, you don't even address their political concerns, you just try and like stamp them out. But because there is in some ways a rareness to fascism, but a commonness to the far right in the contemporary moment, because of the way in which the, the structure of society has changed, because of that, I think it makes sense more sense to think of the project as essentially against the far right rather than anti-fascist. And that means engaging with its political ideas, engaging with what it says uh, politically, and therefore doing the kind of political contestation that we were talking about the feminist anti-fascism assembly um, doing earlier. Yeah, I think, and I think... Um... To build on 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 that um, is that you know essentially I guess when we look at anti-fascism in the way that you've described, it's it's also describing um, a response to a situation of deep, profound crisis, and I mean acute crisis rather than the kind of um, uh, the kind of everyday crisis that we find ourselves living through now, right? Um, I mean, for example, if we take the example of um, uh, of Turkey in the late 70s, right? When you have a, essentially um, a, a open civil war um, between uh, armed revolutionary left um, groups and uh, the far right um, that's going on there. And this is kind of built, um, this, this kind of crisis point develops after kind of the, the fascist party, the National Movement Party or National Action Party um, has been a part of government and um, has infiltrated um, and developed a very uh, infiltrated parts of uh, the state, particularly kind of the police forces and the military, and um, has very, very strong uh, kind of relationships with that. And so you have an existential threat, not only to kind of um, kind of the left, quote unquote, but you also have uh, an, existential, an existential threat to people who, who are outside of what that ideology defines as um, kind of a, a Turk or a citizen of the Turkish state. Um, and most prominently in that period is kind of people who follow the um, Alevi faith. Um, who again are also again um, people who are more who were at least more who were are more open to organisation from the left right and so when you when you get into that situation where you literally kind of have um, in certain parts and there's a very good essay that I can link to you about kind of the failures of the left in this period just after it was written just after the 1981 coup uh, called the tragedy of the Turkish left it was written in the uh, the New Left Review right but where you literally have a situation of parts one half of village being under control of fascists and the other half of the village being under controlled by leftist forces right um, I think again maybe again it makes more sense in that to to talk about kind of anti-fascism but also your uh, the way you discuss your um organization is is your organization the way you do things is fairly limited right um, because you have to meet a an existential threat and i think maybe that's where uh, in, uh, important discussions will have and i think we should start having those conversations um because like you say right like these things are happening it's not unlikely that that would could would could or could happen here um as it has happened in in other parts of the world in some ways the struggle of 
anti-fascist organizing is that it has to sit between various kinds of pressures that are coming from different sides. On the one hand, it has to, anti-fascist organizations have to maintain something like organizational memory or institutional memory, which means that they have to be able to reproduce the organization, not just inside the single kind of far-right cycle. And the far-right does tend to move in cycles. It gets a new idea, it runs with it for a few years, kind of burns out, comes back, and so on. So not just for the duration of one cycle does the anti-fascist organization have to reproduce itself, but also over multiple cycles, which can take you know, 10, 15, 20 years at a, at a stretch. So there's kind of a problem of organizational memory there. There's also the problem of doing the kind of clandestine activities that anti-fascist organizations more or less kind of have to do or kind of committed to do often um, and protecting those from the state. On the other hand, um, doing the kind of mass movement organization that uh, anti-fascism really genuinely does require except if it's going to oppose you know, the most like extreme and small groups of kind of you know, neo-Nazis and so on, of which in Britain, there are not many. It also has to um, adopt various other kinds of concerns, but it has to like, have a kind, of, a, um, a kind of cultural aspect to it as well. Um, and it has to interface with the broader anti-racist uh, movement that is really quite popular at the moment. So it's, kind of, it's got this kind of organizational problem um, and at the same time, it's got to address changes uh, in the structure of society, shift from kind of broad institutional societies that have strong trade union participation and so on towards kind of network models that are based on the internet. And so the problem, the reason why anti-fascist organization is such a kind of a difficult topic is because it has to conform to all these different sort of design specifications simultaneously. And that's that's a real struggle. Yeah, I I would very much, I very much agree with that. And I think, again, it, it, it happens at a point where the left as it were um is kind of like at a uh, historic low um where, where it's struggling and if we look at our kind of last attempt at um if we look at our last attempt at kind of of of, of some sort of like institutional power uh, for example well which is the the corbyn moment it was a corbyn moment now i'm sure that's kind of further to the right than all of us on this podcast and most of the listeners right but i think it's an important uh, thing to come to terms with um in the sense of, of spending five years on on a project grappling uh, with political uh, the questions of like political power of political organization um involved in uh, involved in a struggle because of the perceived threat of that um organization and ultimately failing in those goals and not and coming out of it without kind of uh those kind of um coming out of it in for the left at least being in probably a weaker position than it was before and without durable institutions um or, or you know durable modes of organizing or durable i would guess or even kind of i think um I even think would say like you know important nodes in that kind of in the in in a kind of uh, network society or at least with some of those uh with some of those um uh, kind of important nodes um that are have been effectively sidelined um from a like mainstream political um project I think that's basically true but there is at the same time a genuine I think um you know very popular um, desire to do anti-racism, to express anti-racist politics, to confront racism wherever it kind of rears its head. Maybe not anti-fascism as such, but nevertheless anti-racism. And so there's a kind of a, like in some ways a humiliation and a kind of difficulty for the anti-fascist movement is that it's not been able to harness exactly the kinds of mass anti-racist sentiment that has you know been expressed in Black Lives Matter and so on for its own ends, for its own kind of slightly more kind of narrow concerns. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I think, but and at the same time, at the same time where we have this kind of uh, mass uh, anti-racist uh, consciousness, we also have the British state unleashing the most brutal um, policies um, yeah. against against migrants. Um, and, and indeed against uh, like political expression more widely. With the, absolutely, you know, absolutely. Crime sentencing bill. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that is um, an interesting contradiction that we have to grapple with um so uh thank you to zach for coming and discussing uh this issue with us i think it was a really useful conversation at least for me and i had some more thoughts which i might try and write down and do an article about at some point um and thanks to sam for for joining us as well like usual and we'll see you um next time thanks Zach. thank you very much for having me bye
Silver Threads, Still Walking, Still Waking is co-hosted by me, Carla Bergman. And me, Eleanor Goldfield. This is where we interview long-term organizers and radicals about their watershed moments, what they've learned along the way, and how they maintain their hope on this path. Dreaming and building emergent worlds for a present and future anchored in justice and freedom for all. Because there are forks in the road, but they all lead us home to the fight, to the build. Rules. <laughs> 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 <laughs>